0: The very first movie I remember going to as a kid was Who Framed Roger Rabbit?
1: I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant. Then I'll try him.
0: I was not prepared for this movie. And I don't think my dad knew what he was getting himself into. I made him take me home after the scene where they dissolve a tiny cartoon slipper in a barrel of acid.
1: They're not kid gloves. But the second movie
0: I remember that. going to as a kid was Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Now, I would have been about nine years old, so there were probably some other movie outings in my short life that I can't remember. But this movie, well, it stood out to me. The scene that seared itself into my young brain was an attack on a Klingon ship. The ship loses artificial gravity and the Klingons on board are helplessly floating in zero-G. Then, two Starfleet operatives beam aboard. They're in full encounter suits with helmets obscuring their identities. They begin killing every Klingon they come across, firing phasers that, unlike any other phaser fight I can remember, draw blood. Pink Blood. Floating pink globules of blood. It wasn't exactly gruesome, and apparently producers had to make the blood pink to avoid a PG 13 rating, but the scene was memorable nonetheless. It's safe to say that Star Trek is a defining mythology in my life. Star Trek, along with a social gospel infused Methodism, shaped my understanding of justice, multiculturalism, and the inherent worth of every being. Star Trek also shaped my view on economics. It was Star Trek IV, the voyage home—that's the one with the whales— that first established that the Federation economy doesn't revolve around money. Then, in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation's first season— Captain Picard explains to a 20th century financier who's recently been thawed after cryogenic preservation that humanity is no longer obsessed with the accumulation of wealth or possessions. And of course, there's the scene in Star Trek First Contact where Captain Picard tells a 21st century refugee the same thing.
1: How much this thing cost? The economics of the future is somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity.
0: I like to imagine Picard in a high school, 21st century history class, learning that those unenlightened schmucks in what was then called the United States were obsessed with money. But I digress. It's not that money doesn't exist in the 23rd and 24th centuries, according to Star Trek, but the Federation doesn't use currency. All needs are provided for so people work out of a sense of cooperation and curiosity rather than for a paycheck. Now, honestly, I'm not sure how any devoted Star Trek fan could turn out to be anything other than a fervent anti-capitalist. Star Trek is not the most complete fictional representation of a currency-free economy. We don't, for instance, know how Captain Picard's family owns a vineyard estate, nor do we know by what economic mechanisms the Chateau Picard distributes its wine. If private property of that sort still exists, it's not hard to imagine that economic inequality still exists, too. You're listening to Strange New Work, a series from What Works that explores how speculative fiction can help us imagine and create a radically different future for work. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. I'm a writer, podcaster, producer, and critic who's been exploring the future of work for almost 15 years now. I firmly believe that the way we work is broken, that the identities we create as workers are harmful, and that an economic system designed to enrich the few at the expense of the many is antithetical to the promise of multicultural democracy. I write about the destructive nature of our economy all the time, but this series isn't about that. It's about shedding our preconceived notions of what work is and how economies function to imagine something new. Over this series, we'll look at the types of work that might exist in the future, how our personal relationships with work could evolve, and whether it's more likely that future workers will form cozy work families or sign their lives away to a multi-galactic corporation. If you're a speculative or science fiction fan, I hope this series gives you a new way to read or view your favorite stories. And if you're not into speculative or science fiction there will be plenty for you too. I'll be using speculative fiction to consider futures and ask questions that might not be evident given our current relationships to work and business. But this isn't so much a series about speculative fiction as it is a series about imagining strange new worlds. What does that mean? Well, before we return to Star Trek, let's examine how speculative fiction can help us give meaningful context thought experiments. Now, you might wonder, isn't sci-fi just made up of escapist stories about adventures in space? And the answer is no, not at all. (laughs) There are many bad books, writes Ursula K. Le Guin. There are no bad genres. Science fiction gets a bad rap. It's genre fiction, which means it's assumed to be formulaic, plot-driven, and superficial. It's pulpy, which refers to the low-quality paper that mass-market paperbacks are made from. As writing goes, these books aren't even worth decent paper. Serious writers, it's thought, Write about the real. They write about intimate details of strained relationships, untold stories of history, the multitude of ways a person can be immiserated. Of course, all of those themes are present in science fiction, too. It's not all space operas in which the human remnant has to save the galaxy from an evil artificial intelligence. this is one of the reasons why science fiction is routinely called speculative fiction today. The label of speculative fiction allows us to grant a story set in the far future or an alternate dimension a bit more literary weight. Le Guin argues that fantasy, science fiction, and speculative fiction, which are all just different ways of saying stories that take liberties with the laws of physics— actually help us take on a deeper understanding of our lives right here on 21st century planet Earth. I I never did think much about the future. Uh, I'm only interested really in the present and the past. Uh, Who knows what the future is? The the future in science fiction is just a metaphor for now. The most revealing and accurate descriptions of our daily life, she writes are shot through with strangeness, or displaced in time, or set on imaginary worlds, or dissolved into the phantasmagoria of drugs or of psychosis, or rise from the mundane suddenly into the visionary, and then come out the other side. Speculative fiction, after all, isn't actually about the future. It's about seeing the present differently. When Annalee Newitz imagines construction workers specially designed and decanted by the company that owns them for the purpose of building a city on a terraformed world, they give us the chance to consider whether our situation feels much different. When China Mielville imagines two cities occupying the same geographic space, each with its own language, economy and culture, he gives us a chance to consider the ways our own society is bifurcated, the ways we move through the world unseeing, but not really the world we don't belong to. When Octavia Butler imagines a young woman rising out of an even more violent and horrifically unequal version of the United States than our own, forming a new religion and creating her own brand of institutional power, She gives us the chance to consider how a different worldview today might change our fates. And this is what the tech bros who worship at the altar of Ayn Rand don't get about speculative fiction. They're not asking the questions hiding in plain sight within the author's texts. They think cautionary tales are fodder for capitalist plunder, with no hint of irony. Writer Packy McCormick recently compiled a database of all the inventions contained in science fiction that have yet to be invented. McCormick described science fiction ideas as, quote, floating around in latent space until the technology in the present catches up enough to make it, or something like it, reality. When the time is right, he explains, an inventor or entrepreneur grabs it and tries to wrestle it into the real world. Sci-fi is a goldmine of ideas for startups. Now, for what it's worth, I think the database project is pretty cool. However, the inventions of science fiction aren't the products to be sold the inventions of science fiction, are new social, political, economic, and epistemic worlds. Now, to a new novel confronting the big issues of our time, from emerging technologies to climate change. In The Immortal King Rao, the main character grows up in a family of Indian coconut farmers to become the world's most powerful tech CEO. It's a debut novel for the author, Valhini Vara,
1: and she speaks to Hari Sreenivasan about it, and also about drawing on her own experience as a journalist covering Silicon Valley for the Wall Street Journal. In the
0: near future world Vara imagines, the world is run by an algorithm. Instead of democracy, there is shareholder government. Instead of politicians, there is a master algorithm. The novel's narrator explains, quote, "using people's social profiles as inputs, the algo would make informed decisions using not only demographic markers but lived experience. Rather than pledging one's labor to any single corporation, trading hours for dollars, kayats, or CDs, shareholders would sell it at will and be compensated in social capital based on the algo's prediction of the actual value they had produced. As the algorithm determined a shareholder's social capital, so too did it determine how many resources would be allocated to that shareholder. Shareholders' needs would be fulfilled through a monthly withdrawal of their social capital. Quote, the algo determining the most efficient investment of funds. So I tell people it is the story of uh, a small child who's born on a coconut grove in the south of India to a Dalit family at the sort of bottom of the caste hierarchy. He's a precocious kid. He moves to the U.S. in the 1970s, starts a tech company that's sort of like an Apple-like tech company. And that company grows and grows and grows and becomes the biggest company in the world. And eventually King, the main character of the book, has engineered this sort of global world takeover where he's sort of sitting on top of this global world government. And when the book opens, um, we are with his daughter, Athena, who is narrating his life story from a prison cell where she is being held because she's been uh, accused of somehow being involved in his killing. He made a fortune that would turn Bezos green with envy. Vara's story is not a utopia though. The shareholder government and the master algorithm aren't portrayed as a positive social innovation. Rao isn't a role model, but it's easy to imagine what the general idea of this ultimate product might inspire Zuckerberg, Musk or Bezos to dream up. Instead, Farah's story, when read in full, asks much bigger questions. They're questions of identity, memory, family, justice, and the pursuit of truth within the context of unrelenting surveillance. Some of my favorite works of speculative fiction ask questions about colonialism, gender, neurodiversity, inequality, language, sexuality, religion, and vocation. Sure, There are sapient robots, interstellar communication devices, asteroid mines, and faster than light travel. But those inventions serve the questions the author wants to explore. Now, these are also questions being asked in realist fiction. Any novel that's long listed for one of the big literary prizes is guaranteed to be asking at least one big, hairy question. But speculative fiction. Allows us to consider these questions without the hang ups of our current time. If I ask you to consider how the world might be different five years from now, you'd most likely start with what you know about the world now. You'd think about current trends, social progress, and political friction then you'd take what you know about now and run a sort of simulation that gets you about five years out. It may or may not be accurate, but it's unlikely that the world you imagine living in five years from now is very different from the one we live in today. However, if I ask you to consider how the world might be different a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, or a thousand years in the future well, you're likely to make some pretty creative leaps. So while realist fiction and speculative fiction both involve invented characters and conflicts, realist fiction will inevitably rely on our present expectations. It can ask big, important questions. But it has a hard time imagining how a particular answer might play out in a way that doesn't implicate our present prejudices and structural problems. Speculative fiction, on the other hand, offers unique epistemic value. Or so says philosophers Johan de Smet and Helen de Cruz. They argue that speculative fiction offers a distinctly meaningful way to consider philosophical questions apart from realist fiction or the philosophical thought experiment? First, they point to the creative power of thinking about the distant future, as I just outlined. Then, they reflect on the transportive quality in works of speculative fiction as part of this argument. Transportation, as they mean it, was coined by Richard Gehrig in 1993. It means that a story evokes the experience of being fully immersed and drawn into a fictional world. Through transportation, we can feel out the broader context of a story, including its moral and ethical framework. We can try on a set of ethical principles that might be foreign to us, but are taken for granted in the world of the story. And here we can return to Star Trek. Take, for instance, the character of Data in Star Trek The Next Generation. Data is a machine, an android. He looks mostly human, except for the thick slick of jaundice colored skin over his cybernetic frame. He behaves mostly humanly, aside from some quirky movements and incredibly powerful artificial intelligence. But he is inorganic through and through. The crew of the Enterprise, though, treat him as totally equal with everyone else. Throughout the series, we're introduced to people who don't treat him equally, who don't treat him as sentient even, but according to the moral framework of the Star Trek universe, that behavior is seen as aberrant.
1: Come on, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness prove to the court that I am sentient this is absurd we all know you're sentient so I am sentient but commander data is not that's right uh-huh. why why am I sentient well you are self-aware Ah, that's the second of your criteria well, let's deal with the first intelligence is commander data intelligent yes it has the ability to learn and understand and to cope with new situations. Like this hearing? Yes. What about self-awareness? What does that mean? Why why am I self-aware? Because you are conscious of your existence and actions. You are aware of yourself and your own mm-hmm. ego. Commander Data, what are you doing now? I'm taking part in a legal hearing to determine my rights and status. Am I a person or property? And what's at stake? My right to choose. Perhaps my very life. My rights. My status. My right to choose. My life. Oh, it seems reasonably self-aware to me, Commander. This is exceedingly difficult. Do you like, Commander Data? I... I don't know it well enough to like or dislike it. But you admire him. Oh, yes. It is an extraordinary piece of engineering and programming. Yes, you have said that. Now, tell me, Commander, what is data? I don't understand. What is he? A machine. Is he? Are you sure? Yes. You see, he's met two of your three criteria for sentience, so what if he meets the third? Consciousness in even the smallest degree. What is he then? I don't know. Do you? Do you? Well, that's the question you have to answer.
0: Data has always been my favorite Star Trek character. And it's really no wonder why. Data is a character rich with autistic traits. His experience of the social world is one in which he is encouraged to participate fully, but at the same time never quite belongs to. He requires a special chip to experience emotions. And when he finally gets that chip... The results are strange and unpredictable, often overwhelming to the point where he actually has to turn the chip off again. And despite all that, Data is portrayed as a critical member of the crew, not only in his duties, but in his relationships to fellow crew members. His intelligence, senses, strength, and memory are all valuable to the enterprise. But so is his company and friendship. The Star Trek universe, then, is one in which I could imagine being fully accepted in. Data isn't a perfect character. His motivation is always about becoming more human rather than becoming more Data. But the world that loves Data is as close to perfect as I can imagine. Being transported into the world of Star Trek gives me a new knowledge framework with which to imagine the future. I'm no longer epistemically trapped in what I know of the past and present. The future becomes something where my usual assumptions are no longer given. The realism of today gives way to the possibility of tomorrow. If the idea Mark Fisher proposes as capitalist realism means the inability to imagine a world shaped by systems other than capitalism, then speculative fiction gives us a way to imagine the unreality of capitalism. Speculative fiction often invites us to see our economic systems and the institution of work as downright absurd. On screen or on paper, these stories normalize all sorts of ways of creating, maintaining, and working together. Now, not all speculative fiction paints a rosy picture of the future of work and economics, of course. But even in the more dystopian stories, at least the questions are still being asked, the assumptions are still being challenged, the absurdity is laid bare. Science fiction author Samuel Delaney describes one of the tasks of these stories as moving us away from either-or thinking. It doesn't matter then whether the speculative fiction we're engaging in is either utopian or dystopian, whether the picture of the future is one that's good for workers or bad for workers. Instead, what matters is imagining a third, fourth, fifth, or 97th way things could turn out. The point is curiosity, asking questions, and imagining strange new answers. Delaney writes, quote, If science fiction is affirmative, it is not through any obligatory happy ending, but rather through the breadth of vision it affords, through the complex interweave of these multiple visions of human origins and destinations." Certainly, such a breadth of vision does not abolish tragedy. But it does make a little rarer the particular needless tragedy that comes from a certain type of narrow-mindedness. If we're to imagine strange new worlds of work, it's this certain type of narrow-mindedness we must challenge And if that means we get to adventure beyond our own solar system in the process, well, all the better. In the next episode of this series, you'll hear from poet and artist Morgan Harper Nichols about world building as a practice of hope. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at whatworks.fyi, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispel.